right. Today's passage reading is from Luke chapter 15, verses 20 through 32. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son, yeah, now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But, his answer, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and is found. It is a real honor and privilege to be here, and I am thankful to Steve Harden, uh, my friend, uh, for inviting me. I've known Steve, he was one of the first people I got to know when I moved to Tulsa, and uh, he's been a, a faithful friend, and it was kind of cool. I saw on your website that uh, last week he preached on infant baptism, which is kind of fun because he and I used to argue uh, about infant bat, or well, discuss as friends uh, about infant baptism, and uh, apparently he's come around to my way of thinking, which is nice for me and fun. We actually listened to that sermon on the way over here. Great sermon. Uh, so, but it is a privilege. Thank you. Um, one of the places that we lived, my family lived kind of on the journey to get here to Tulsa, um, working at a church outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, one of the, the summers that we lived there, I was working on I was a sermon series preaching Jesus' parables in the book of Luke. And so I decided to do something that I thought would help, and that was to put together what's called a sermon support group, uh, which is, can be a group of people who either helps you bef- before you preach or after you preach to kind of help you think about the, the sermon. And so I... Uh, intentionally looked for people living near us who uh, were unchurched, because I wanted to sort of, you know, I'd grown up with these stories, and I'd preached through them, and I wanted to sort of see them newly through, through different eyes. And so there were three older single ladies that lived in the condo area that we lived in, um, you know, who got to know us and loved playing with our at the time, one baby, and um, so I invited them to come and, uh, and be a part of this support group, and the format was just, we're going to take one, uh, one of Jesus' parables a week, and we're going to read it, and so I would read it, and then I would simply ask them what they thought, right? I'd, I'd try not to color their interpretation, tell them what I thought, I just want to know what you think, and so the first week, we did the prodigal son parable, 
And, uh, and you know, as you know, that if, you know if you don't know this story, I, we just read about a little over half of it, right? It's a story about a, a father who has two sons, and the younger son asks for his inheritance, and he goes off and he spends it, right? Women, wine, and song until he's broke and having to get a menial job out in the field feeding pigs. And so then he says, I want... I wish I could just go home and even just be a servant in my father's house. And so he comes back and then the father welcomes him back, right? And throws him a feast. But then his older brother gets angry, right? And so I I read this story to these ladies and then I said, what do you think? And, And I was expecting them all to sort of identify with the younger brother, right? Because I mean, who of us hasn't messed up? Right? Who of us hasn't screwed up and who of us is not grateful for a, for a parent or a friend who's given us grace and welcomed us back, right? That's what I was expecting. That was not their answer. All three of the ladies identified with the older brother. And they were not only perplexed, but angry at the father, for letting this younger brother just come back and just welcoming him back and throwing a party for after he did all these terrible things to the family? Wow. That's really interesting. Well, let me ask you the same question. When you think about this story, which brother do you identify with? The, the younger brother, the, the rebellious black sheep of the family, or the older brother? The dutiful but angry brother. Well, this story has often been called the, the story of the lost son, right? And this makes sense because it's the third in a trilogy of stories about lost things that Jesus tells, which we'll talk about in just a second. But as we're going to see, it's really the story of two lost sons. Now, to really kind of get this story, uh, we need to set the table, the context, a little bit. This is during Jesus' ministry. We find him in Luke 15. He is uh, spending time with a specific group of people. And it's really those people that uh, probably your mother warned you about, right? That bad company corrupts good morals. People that were known to be immoral, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, Right? And the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who see Jesus, they are appalled that he would keep this kind of company. Right? They, say, they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In other words, this, this Jesus, who's purporting to be a teacher of religion, right? of our religion, he, and he's hanging out with people who don't hold, don't keep our religion. He's got no credibility. And so Jesus, addressing the Pharisees, tells them three stories in order to try to change their hearts. The first story is about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, right? And one of the sheep gets lost. And so he leaves the 99 to look, to go and search out the one. And then the second story is about a woman who has 10 silver coins. And when she loses one, she, she literally turns her house upside down in order to find that one lost coin. And then the third story is about the father with two sons who, who holds out hope that his lost son will finally come home. 
And now there's, there's a lot more going on culturally in this story than a lot of us with our modern American eyes see when we read the story. And the first thing has to do with the son's, the younger son's request. Remember I said that at the beginning of the story, he asks his father for his share of the inheritance. Now, that probably doesn't sound too crazy to us, right? When, when, my, when Rachel and I were wanting to buy our first house, my in-laws gave us some money. They said, this is a down payment on your inheritance, right? And they gave the same amount to her brother, helped us buy the house. It's probably somewhat normal. But in Jesus' day, an inheritance was typically not money, right? You didn't keep your money in the bank. In, in that society, in the agrarian society, your, your wealth and your inheritance was bound up in your land, right? And in your animals, your cattle and your sheep, right? That's, that was the family's wealth and their ability and a way of making money. And so... Uh, and the father, right, he's, he would be the head of this extended family. And it was his job to take care of the family, run the affairs. And, uh, and so for the son, this son to ask his father for his share of the inheritance is in some ways to say, you're not taking good enough care of me. And kind of in a way of saying, I wish you were dead. Right, so I could have what's coming to me, which normally would have only come after the father passed on. Now also, uh, the older son in Jewish families was expected to be the head of the extended family whenever the father died, and so he would have gotten the larger share of the inheritance, right? So from the very beginning of the story, we need to realize that the younger brother's demand for his inheritance was not only a massive insult to the father, but was also, it would have been a huge impact on the older brother, right? Because in order for the father to give him his inheritance, he had to sell off part of the land or the cattle, which would have weakened the family's economic status, would have weakened their social status in the community on all of those things. And, the, and when the older brother would have come into his inheritance, it would have been greatly lessened because of what the younger brother had done. So the, the older brother has a legitimate beef here, right? You're, his younger brother's some way sort of destroying his, his family and, uh, and the family's future. But he wants his fair share, right? You even hear that near the end of the story and you hear the indignation in his voice you, Dad, you, you threw a party for this screw-up? Where's my feast, right? I'm, I've, I'm the one who stayed. I'm the one who's done the right thing, right? I'm the one who's been faithful and done my duty. Now, the older brother would not have been the only one who would have been angry about this betrayal, right? Kenneth Bailey is a Bible scholar who in the 1960s went and lived in uh, the places, in the kind of the ancient Near Eastern places where Jesus would have walked. And he lived among people who in many ways live the same way today as people did 2,000 years ago, right? 
in this agrarian tribal society away from uh, sort of modern technology. And so he, he became actually a shepherd with them and sort of wanted to learn how they live. And, and he would talk to them about uh, what he was studying in the Bible. And, and one day he asked some of the people, he said, well, what, what would have happened what would happen if a son asked his father for his share of the inheritance while he's still alive? And they said, that would never happen. <laughs> the, the shame that that son would have brought upon his family and the massive insults of the father, no son would ever think of doing that. But, but Kenneth Bailey, he, he insisted. He said, well, well, just say, you know, just say it did happen. What, what would happen then? What would happen if the son tried to come home after losing all the money? And they said this. They said, probably what would have happened is all of the men in the town or in the tribe would have met this son as he was coming back to town and would have beaten him severely for the shame that he had brought upon his family and upon the community. And then he would have probably been made to sit outside his father's house for a period of days, maybe even weeks, sort of atone for the shame. And if the father was exceedingly generous, he would allow the son to come back into his household as a servant, which is what the younger son expects, right? He expects to come back as a servant. He knew he deserved to be disowned, and he had no expectation of coming back as a son. He expected to live sort of in dishonor for the rest of his life. And so do you see how radical and jarring Jesus' image of this father looking for his son and running out to meet him and not only happy to see him but also wanting to get there before anybody else does, Right? To, to meet him with grace and to welcome him back into the family, right? He, what does he do? He says, bring the best robe. Put a ring on his finger, which is a sign of being, having his sonship restored, being part of the family again. It's a beautiful picture of grace. But it was anything but beautiful to the older brother. In fact, to the older brother, it was disgusting. In the, uh, the Academy Award-winning movie, Amadeus, uh, we, when the movie starts, we meet a composer named Antonio Salieri. And, uh, and Salieri has is, is reached a very good place in his life where he is a respected musician. He's the court composer for the king. He has a nice life, and he has the people's respect until Mozart shows up. And very quickly, Salieri realizes that Mozart's talent dwarfs his talent and that he will never be able to be the kind of musician and composer that Mozart is. But instead of accepting that limitation and maybe even learning from Mozart, what does he do? He gets angry. And he, he gets angry with God Right? He says, how could you do this to me I, who have served you for so long? And this, this brat 
of a boy who's so much better than me. And, and in this very memorable image, he takes the crucifix that he once wore and he throws into the fire and he says, God, we are now enemies, you and me. It's a very vivid picture of what our hearts often do. It's a very vivid picture of self-righteousness. The older brothers can't see beyond their own hurt, beyond their own pride in order to celebrate other people's talents or success or celebrations. But listen to how tender the father's words are to his older son in verses 31 and 32 after the, the son has you know, thrown this pity party. The father says, uh, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He's pleading with the, his older son. This is huge for him to come back. Don't you see it? But the, the brother can't see it, right? Now, the real problem in this story is not the loss of inheritance, Right? The real problem in this story is loss of relationship. And when you get down to it, neither brother acts like a son to this father. In different ways, right? The, the younger brother, he finds his joy and his significance in, de, in determining his own path, right? And living the way that he wants to live apart from the family, apart from the father. But the older son also finds his joy and his significance in doing his duty, apart from the father and the son and the family. Neither of them finds their joy or significance in the father's love and in his relationship. And Jesus is telling us something about the core of Christianity, the core of our faith, that it is not a core about doing your duty. At core, it is, it is what Jesus calls, says it's the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The core of our faith is a relationship. And neither of these sons is showing love to their father, right? They're, they're making their lives all about themselves. Now, we see this throughout the Bible, right, in the Old Testament. Israel is very much the younger brother, right? They were called, they were chosen by God to follow him, to, to worship him and live in his love. But what do they do? You can hardly go two pages in the Old Testament without them running off after other gods, Right? running off and, and trying to be like the other nations. And I imagine a lot of us have had period, periods of our lives where we've been like that, right? Running away from God, running away from responsibility, living only for ourselves and our own pleasure. But I want to focus kind of for the rest of this sermon on the older brother, And the older brother, we see him in the Old Testament as well. Some very vivid examples. Starting near the beginning in Genesis 4, we see Cain, who is an older brother, literally, but also spiritually. 
right? He gets so angry when God does not accept his worship that he kills his younger brother, Abel. In the book of Job, we see Job's friends who they think because they still have their family, they still have their land and wealth, that they are somehow better than Job. And really, a lot of their advice is talking down to him. Jonah. Jonah was a classic older brother, right? Concerned only about his people, only about his future and his inheritance. He doesn't care about the people in Nineveh who are going to be destroyed, God tells him. He doesn't want them to get grace. He wants them to get judgment. Let me ask you this. Do you identify with any of those older brothers? Or let's try this. Kind of a classic, a riff on a classic uh, old routine. You might be an older brother if... If you believe that God owes you a good life because of all the good things you've done for him, you might be an older brother if you believe that the success that you've had in your life is mainly attributable to your hard work. Or if you think that all poor people are lazy and don't deserve help. You might be an older brother if you think Having better theology makes you a better person than those people with bad theology. You might be an older brother if you can't forgive people who have offended you. Or if you always have to be right when you're arguing with your spouse. You might be an older brother if your kids only get your approval, if they get good grades and do well in sports. Or if you, if you don't want the kids with the bad reputations coming to church because what would the neighbors think? Finally, you might be an older brother if you forget that you were once a younger brother apart from God's grace. Well, here's a question you may have wondered about if you've read this passage before or when AJ just read it. What happens at the end of this story? Right? Because it, it ends pretty abruptly, doesn't it? You know, the, the older son comes in when he hears there's a party going on. He's like, what's going on? He said, well, he's, your brother's back having a feast. And then he gets mad at the, his father, right? This son of yours squanders your wealth. Why are you throwing a party? What about me? And the father entreats him, everything I have is yours. And then it just ends, Right? With the father's entreaty. What happens after that? Does the, does the older brother go into the party? Does he, does he reconcile with his father or with his younger brother? Well, the answer is that the older brother kills the father. Like, what? Where's that in the Bible? Is that like Luke 25? No, there's only 24 chapters in Luke. Uh, but remember who Jesus is talking to, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, right? They are the ultimate older brothers taking the greatest pride in their ability to keep the law and looking down on anyone who's not as good at keeping the law as they are. And these same Pharisees, they never make peace with Jesus, the Son of God. 
And they are the ones who are behind his being accused and arrested and ultimately put to death. The Lord brother kills the father. But here's Jesus trying to tell them and us through the power of story that that they're in danger of loving their own righteousness, their own goodness so much that they are going to write God out of their lives. Here's God himself standing in front of them and they can't see past their own self-righteousness. He's trying to warn of a reality that they would never imagine, right? That they're in grave danger of living eternally apart from God. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says this. He says, religious people are always profoundly disturbed when they discover that they are not and never have been true Christians. Does all of their religion count for nothing? Those hours in church, hours spent doing good things, hours involved in religious activity, do they not count for something in the presence of God? Do they not enable me to say, look what I've done, don't I deserve heaven? Sadly, Ferguson says, thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign I have no understanding of the gospel. See, it's not really a question of, am I self-righteous? The real question is, how self-righteous am I? See, the Christian life is in some respects learning more and more to uncover the self-righteousness that's buried deep in my heart. And I, I would say the more mature you become, the more you grow in the Christian life, the more you will see your own self-righteousness and the various and insipid ways it seeps into everything that you and I do. And here's the thing. <laughs> The most self-righteous person is the person who doesn't think they are. And the most deluded person who thinks that they have no self-righteousness. And so the million-dollar question for those of us who dared to entertain the notion that we might be in grave danger of living our lives apart from God based on our desire to be seen as right and good is this, how... How do we keep from being the older brother? Well, the first thing we have to do is realize that all of life is grace. The Bible says every good, every perfect gift comes from above. Right? From your family to your strengths, to your abilities, to your health, to the good things that happen to you, they are all gifts from God. Right? And so we need to be thankful. It's God's kindness, so give thanks for it. And then, number two, realize that you're no better than anyone else. Right? The, Bible, the Bible shows us that there is a radical equality in two things, in both our problem and our cure. Right? Our problem is that we are all sinful and in need of a Savior, and I am, I am no better than the junkie living in the streets or the Wall Street executive who's in white-collar prison for having swindled all those people. 
My sin may be different. It may be in different quantities here and here, but I am in the same boat, and you are in the same boat of being a sinner, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our problem, and the cure is the same for all of us as well. We all need Jesus. And the moment you say, I don't need to work on my sin or I don't have any self-righteousness is the moment that you say, I don't need Jesus. You don't want to say that. And then the third thing, realize all of life is a gift. Realize that you're no better than anyone else. And then third, learn to love the Father. Find your significance in the Father's love for you and start to try to be like him in the way that he loves unconditionally. Look at the overwhelming grace of the Father, right? Again, when the older brother throws his pity party and repudiates the Father's kindness, how does the Father respond? He doesn't yell at his son. He doesn't belittle him. He reminds him of their relationship. You're my son. All that I have is yours. And he reminds him of what is important. Again, this is Jesus pleading with, with his worst enemies. See, Jesus not only loves wild rebels, he also loves hardened religious Pharisees. And he loves them so much that he wants to set them free from the prison of performance, acceptance, religion. He loves them so much that he wants them to feel loved and understand grace. He loved them so much that he died for them. Imagine a church full of people who are constantly thankful for the grace of God in their lives. Um, that would be a welcoming church, a joyful church. Some of those songs we sang earlier really embody that idea. My one request, my righteousness, how I need you. If we really live like that, this would be a welcoming place where non-religious people would come and be able to be themselves and feel loved and not judged. Right? Where, where we could feel like we could be ourselves, where we could find joy in the midst of our struggles. The world and the church are full of older brothers. And we need to extend them grace. But one more thing. <laughs> Let's not let the older brothers of the world keep us from enjoying the goodness of God. Because we're going to have a party, whether they come in or not, right? The kingdom of heaven is a feast, but it's only entered into by grace. Jesus asks, will you come in? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us to our own devices, uh, that you don't leave us in our sin and in our misery, but you have come very close to us. You sent Jesus to be one of us, to live the perfect life and die the death that we deserved, 
that we might be clothed in his righteousness. So Lord, let us remember every day that we don't come to you because we deserve you. We come because you have called us by your grace. And nothing in our hands we bring but simply to the cross we cling as Jesus has made us worthy of coming before you. May we be moved by that kind of love, moved by that compassion to love those around us, to love the younger brothers in our lives and the older brothers in our lives and welcome them both back. We pray that you would strengthen our love and compassion. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We now uh, come to the Lord's table. This supper is uh, something that tells us about the past, the present, and the future. As though all three of those time aspects to it. Uh, it tells us about the past because it it symbolizes for us the body and blood of Christ. That Jesus went to the cross for us in history and died a death that is given for us. And so we, learn, we remember the past, but it's also a picture of the present. It tells us that Jesus is spiritually present with us here as his people come to worship and to gather at the table. He is with us in a, in a special way. And through the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he's working in and through the preaching of the word and through the elements to sanctify us, to make us stronger, to give us grace and strength for the journey of the Christian life. And then it also tells us about the future. Right? As I said, the, the kingdom of heaven is a feast. And if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, one day you will sit at the heavenly banquet of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus will feed us by his own hand. We will see him face to face. And so we anticipate that supper as we come to this supper. And as we remember how Jesus took bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he also took the cup, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of your sins. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. For Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. given his life and his love for you.